This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land. The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. This is Elizabeth Kramer from the University of New South Wales. This week we're talking about natural disasters and how they've been understood throughout Indonesian history. From the volcanic eruptions that have shaken the earth to the tsunamis that have engulfed coastal communities, Indonesia has endured a tumultuous relationship with nature's wrath. But how have people interpreted or even rationalized these disasters in terms of their views of the world around them, the cosmos and the divine? My guest today to talk about this fascinating topic is Dr. Wayan Jarasastrawan, an historian who completed his PhD at the University of Sydney and is now a postdoctoral research fellow at the École Française d'Extrême-Orient, based in Paris. Jarrah's research interests focus on Indonesia's pre-modern history, particularly in Java and Bali. And it's this expertise that has brought Jarrah onto the podcast today to talk about the topic of natural disasters in Indonesia and how they've been understood and explained by people throughout history. Thank you so much for joining me, Jarrah. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I want to get started with a, a basic question. Just to ease us into the topic, can you give us a bit of background, a very brief background on what natural disasters look like in Indonesia? Indonesia is a country that is particularly prone to natural disasters and specifically what we call geophysical natural hazards, so earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. And the reason for that is Indonesia exists on a boundary between two major tectonic plates. Uh, the Indo-Australian plate and the Eurasian plate. And it exists on what's called a subduction zone, wherein one of the plates is pushed down uh, by the other, so they're pushing together, and one of the plates is being pushed down into the Earth's mantle, as a result of which we have a lot of earthquake seismic activity, as well as production of volcanoes. In fact, a great deal of Indonesia's landmass, particularly the islands of Java and Sumatra through to Bali and the eastern islands were in fact created in the first place due to volcanic activity. So it's a place where seismic and volcanic activity is absolutely a part of the very geology of the country. And I have no doubt that it's also part of the fabric of society as well. So you've done research on how natural disasters were understood and rationalized in the past. So can you just explain firstly what particular era of history you focused on in your research and what kind of sources have you been able to access to learn more about this topic? So I've sought to understand natural disasters in some of the earliest periods of recorded history in Indonesia, by contrast to other some other parts of the world, such as Western Europe or China, written records in Indonesia go back to about 1,500 years ago. So we don't have as long a written recorded history as some other countries, and the records that we do have are far fewer in number. However, I think that it's really interesting to look at the few records that we do have from these early periods, what 
if we were to compare with European history, we might call the medieval period, what in Indonesia is often called the classic period of history. So this is a time when we see the construction of the ancient temples of Borobudur and Prambanan in Java. So this is a period in which we have the earliest examples of kingdoms and civilizations and literature emerging. So we're talking for a period back to about a thousand years ago. The, the sources that I work with, both in inscription and manuscript form, so this means that in this period we have no printing um, in Indonesia, we don't have printing until the modern period. So all of the surviving sources from the Indonesian archipelago from this period are inscriptions, that is, texts written on durable materials like stone and metal or clay or other kinds of long-lasting material. And for a slightly later period, manuscripts, so texts written on lontar, which is a palm leaf, type of palm leaf, or paper, uh, or other kinds of more perishable materials. So these are the main sources that I work with. So the one of the earliest texts that mentions uh, the effect of a volcanic eruption is a metal inscription from the 10th century, so from 900, around 900 AD. And then there are several texts that are, that are later than that. So interesting, Dara. And one thing that I do want to ask you about a little bit more is obviously the concept of Indonesia didn't really exist at the time that you're looking at specifically. And, and Indonesia itself is a really diverse region. In the parts of the archipelago that you've been focused on, what kind of cultural attitudes did you encounter in your research? And how did people think about disasters that occurred around them fairly regularly, I imagine? So the, the area or the part of Indonesia that I have mostly focused on for this research uh, is Java and Bali. And the main reason for that is that those two places have some of the oldest records of natural disasters, uh, even though we know for sure that all uh, many parts of Indonesia were affected by natural disaster. It just so happens that the majority of the written records that have survived to us come from those places. And what we find when we compare across periods, so you know different times going back to the 10th century, but then through to the 14th and into the 18th century, is that in Java and Bali at least, there is a fairly consistent understanding of the significance of natural disasters. And that is that they are understood to be manifestations of power. This is fairly understandable because natural disasters are powerful events. They, they are examples of geological force that come to bear on the land and on people who live in it. And the specific ways that, say, Javanese and Balinese understood this power was that the physical manifestation of natural disasters, so whether that's the earthquake or the volcanic eruption, the products of the volcanic eruption and the damage they cause, they understood them to be signs of some greater power in the background. So this notion of power as both natural and more than natural or supernatural uh, is really strong. We modern uh, people make a distinction between natural and supernatural, but when we, when we look at the Indonesian texts, we find that, in fact, no such distinction is made traditionally by the Javanese and the Balinese natural power and supernatural power are one and the same. They just have 
a variety of different manifestations. And so one important consequence of this is that different kinds of power in the world are seen to be linked because they have the same common source. Specifically, political power is linked to the power of natural disasters because the power of the king or the queen, similarly a manifestation of some underlying strength, uh, just as the emergence of natural disasters or natural um, physical power is. The way we know this is that when we look at traditional historical texts, like chronicles, we find that the birth of a king, for example, so there's a particular king called Hayam Wuruk, uh, who's celebrated in, in Indonesia as one of the major kings of the Majapahit Empire. And in the chronicle that describes his birth, it's mentioned that when he was born, the mountain of Kalud erupted. And this is a common theme that we find in Javanese historical writing all the way up through to the 18th and 19th century, that when something important politically happens, such as uh, a king takes power or is born or emerges, volcanoes tend to erupt at the same time. Uh, Even, in fact, going back to your point about Indonesia, this same notion was part of the biography of first president of Indonesia, Sukarno. It became a trope in the later part of his career, in the 1950s and 60s, that when he was born in 1901, there was a volcanic eruption as a sign that he was destined to be the leader of Indonesia. So even into the modern period, even into the period of Indonesian history, we still find this same notion, the power of natural disasters and quite specifically volcanoes is directly tied to other sorts of manifestations of power in the world, particularly political power. Mm. Uh, I'm going to come back to this question of political power in, in a moment, but before we get to that, I do want to ask you about the natural disasters themselves, or I mean, I guess they weren't considered disasters at that not by some people because they were portents of power, right? They were significant of, of something that had happened or was going to happen. So can you elaborate on who or, or what being is imagined to be wielding it? That's a really interesting question, and it's quite complex, actually, because the specific ways in which that power is theorized or understood differs a lot uh, from context to context from different periods. For example, in Bali, uh, which is a predominantly a Hindu community, the power associated with natural disasters, with earthquakes, is connected to the Hindu divinities, so various Hindu gods practicing yoga, so practicing uh, spiritual concentration and and the gathering of power to themselves through through practice. This is seen to be the background reason, the ultimate reason why various things happen, including natural disasters. And there are ways in which the Balinese are able to predict and calculate the timing of earthquakes or rather to interpret the timing of earthquakes by reference to this understanding that they are the effects of the activities of particular Hindu gods. By contrast, in other parts of Indonesia, say in Java, which is predominantly Muslim, we don't have the same religious framework and therefore we don't have the same ultimate rationalization or theorization 
of why natural disasters occur. Rather, they are seen to be the will of God, uh, consistent with Islamic doctrine, and yet in the way that natural disasters are talked about in the literature in Java, there is some space for other kinds of beings, lesser beings, uh, jinns and spirits and those kinds of things that have a role to play, though that role is never so powerful or agentive as they would be for Alanese's case, because it's not permissible in Islam to attribute ultimate agency to figures, particularly supernatural figures other than God. So there's sort of subtleties in the way that these ideas are fleshed out. Uh, nevertheless, there is some sort of divinity or some sort of natural, uh, supernatural agency at play behind natural disasters. So we don't, we don't encounter what we would consider to be a, a modern scientific explanation. We, we, we don't encounter a, a way of explaining and understanding natural disasters that is purely based on physical explanations about plate tectonics and, and geological forces of that nature. There's always a sense it's that agency behind the scenes that then connects all the different kinds of power to each other. Now, coming back to this idea of political power, I'm just curious because you mentioned that there had been some mythology around Sukarno and and natural occurrences that had happened sometime around his birth and previous rulers as well. What does it look like when a ruler is not doing a good job? Um, are there different disasters? Are there different kinds of impacts that we see in in this sort of cosmological view? Yeah, this is this is an interesting question of interpretation as well, um, and I think that there are also other cultures' notions of God's displeasure or punishment or natural punishment for doing the wrong thing. I mean, this exists in Europe as well; it exists in many other cultures. And so, when we think about it, we can't help but be influenced by our own cultural understandings or our own history of of how natural disasters are interpreted. I say that as a sort of preface because there are explanations that that look at natural disasters as signs that a ruler has performed poorly or that they're being punished or that it's a sign that their rule, their actions are unjust or, or incorrect. I think that it's it's not always easy to draw that link in Java and Bali. Firstly, because the dissipation or the, the fall or the dissolution of one particular form of authority or, or source of power often entails the rise of another power. And so it's always possible to interpret things in two directions. Okay, it might be the fall of the old king, but it's also the rise of a new king. It's got positives and negatives. And I think it very much depends on your standpoint whether you interpret such an event as good or bad. I think that more precisely, the occurrence of natural disasters is a sign of the shift of power or the, a transfer of power, uh, the dissolution of one type and the reconcentration of another. Whether that's the, the moral force attached to that is often a matter of perspective. Uh, I don't think that there is intrinsically a single moral perspective that natural disasters bring because when you have a natural disaster, it can be celebrated if it marks the birth of someone who you value, uh, someone who uh, you see as good for the world. But similarly, it also brings destruction upon people who uh, other people might support. 
So yeah, th- th- there's I think a degree of moral ambiguity there. So for example, in the early 19th century, uh, as the courts of Java were being affected by war, both with the, the British occupation and then subsequently the, the struggle between the Dutch and the Javanese in the 1820s, various eruptions of volcanoes in Java were seen to mark both the emergence of powerful leaders, Javanese leaders like Di Ponogoro, but also the destruction of the land and and the society due to that very violent war. So, yeah, there's not a clear, it's not, we can't simply interpret each event as, well, this is God's approval or God's disapproval. Whenever there's such an event as the transfer of power or the fall of dynasty, there's always winners and losers. And there's always different ways that we can assess the moral force of that event. And I suppose, too, it depends on who's created the source that you're looking at, who, whose interests is that author uh, serving in creating that particular sculpture or, or scripture or, or whatever. So, you know, whenever we look at history, it's it's always about not just what, what it says on the page, but who's written it and the context in, into which um, this piece of uh, information came into the world. Um, I want to move on to my next question now, um, which you have kind of touched on, but I think it might be good to just get a clearer answer on this. So obviously disasters have a huge impact on society, not just in terms of of, um, potential deaths, but also how people understand their own humanity and beliefs about the spiritual world. And the period that you've looked at, and I mean, even since then in Indonesia has seen a lot of changes culturally in terms of religion, in terms of how people do things um, uh, with colonization and and the post-colonial world. So can you give us maybe some examples of how disasters have been seen to to lead to political changes or um, signify a change to the order of natural things? The impacts of natural disasters in Indonesia are of course very depending on intensity, uh, of scale and and of context. So we have at the extreme scale, you know, very large disasters that have undoubtedly affected society in major ways, and then those that are more commonplace and everyday things that people simply get on with their lives and and deal with as they occur. So we have to be mindful of the fact that um, natural occurrences and earthquakes and and volcanic eruptions and the like, do have different scales of, of impact. To make a, a brief comment of something that I think is quite interesting, in Indonesia, it may be that the greatest, the most powerful natural disasters are actually relatively unrecorded. For example, only within the last decade, it's been discovered that there was a major eruption, a very, very large eruption of Mount Samalas in Lombok, and this was discovered through geological research. This was said, dated quite precisely to 1257 AD or CE through scientific methods, but it's completely absent from the historical record of Indonesia at that time, which, though not incredibly detailed, did exist. We do have records from around that time concerning political events, and yet we find no reference to uh, an eruption that you know was more powerful than that of Krakatoa had a had an w- impact all over the world. So this is something to bear in mind as well that when we're looking at 
the pre-modern history, we don't always have the full story in terms of the particular eruption events that occurred, but also the fact that such a major physical event should not have occasioned specific types of record that have come down to us now is, I think, worthy of note. We can only guess or, or we can only speculate about whether people wrote down at the time uh, what was going on. I suspect they almost certainly did. But due to the loss of so much written material in, in Indonesia from this early period, we have no way to prove that. Recent research on historical traditions in Lombok has shown that there are memories of a major eruption of that volcano, which have come down to us for the modern period, to the 19th and 20th century. But Do you mean passed down from generation to generation through stories? Is that what you mean? Yes, yes. So, so we have a number of what I would call kind of hybrid oral written traditions where we see that there has been a long period of oral transmission or transmission from memory through the community from generation to generation. And then at some point, those stories become to be written down, but only after they've experienced many, many cycles of repetition and transmission. So the texts that we that we have, the, rec the written records or written versions of those stories, bear all the hallmarks of having been transmitted orally at some point, uh, even though they now exist in, exist in written form. The historical texts that do talk about major eruptions largely date from the last couple of hundred years, even if they talk about events that are much, much older. And and those texts do describe the sorts of impacts that such a massive eruption had, the manner in which people evacuated and the places they evacuated to, so the understanding of which areas were safe and unsafe. Because when we look at the, at the sources, and this is backed up by modern studies of disaster response, in uh, to, to, specifically to volcanic eruptions in Indonesia, generally the, the the most dangerous effect or output of the volcanic eruption is the pyroclastic flow. So that's the the, the material that, that rushes down quickly, uh, much faster than the actual molten lava, which moves relatively slowly. The pyroclastic material that comes down from the summit very fast and once settling, mixing with water to form what are called lahas. So these sorts of uh, very fast flowing mud rivers or mud floods these are the things that are incredibly destructive because they travel down waterways and down valleys and ravines and destroy all of the infrastructure and the settlements that they come across. And and because they, they move with gravity, the way to avoid them is to go to high ground. And this is what people know in, in Indonesia. They know how to do this. And so we see that when specific disasters occur, specific eruptions are, are told about, the manner in which the communities evacuate to places that they know are safe because they have traditions about how the effect of the volcano is going to move geographically. Of course, it, you know there are always victims and people that always get away, but there is a sense that the community has remembered in various forms previous eruptions, previous mitigation strategies. And so there is a there is a sense of preparedness when these things come along. At least that's what we, we find in the text is it is a way in which both people can move to avoid the impacts of natural disaster. But then also the second part of the story is about rebuilding. So we see that in the texts, there's a great deal of emphasis on what to do after the eruption has occurred, once the impact is known and once the, the risk has subsided. What then do people do? Do they build new communities? Do they try and move back to their old communities? 
both of these options exist, even all the way back to old periods. So the, the inscriptions of the 10th century and the 14th century, we find a great deal of emphasis on compensation from the effects of natural disaster. So we, we have an inscription that, that, that describes how a eruption destroyed a village that was part of the estate of a powerful aristocrat. And so as compensation, she was given another village, another, another part of a piece of land to restore her property. And the same thing a few centuries on, where an earthquake has destroyed the land deeds, the land titles of a particular family, the government reissues, reconfirms their rights the idea being that the state intervenes once the disaster is over, once the risk is gone, intervenes to restore the social order, um, the, the, the social organization, the, the settlement of villages, steps in and seeks to, to reestablish some sort of status quo. Yes, I guess, I guess there's some continuity in this expectation that the state is going to step in at particular points and, and support citizens when they're really in need and, and that. And that's something that we still see to this day, I think, in Indonesia as well. Yeah. Um, I think this this question of, of continuity and change is also interesting in terms of the changes in sociocultural beliefs in Indonesia, and particularly with the rise of Islam and uh, how that's changed the way that people have thought about disasters. Or has there been a continuity, a, a blending of um, ideas around uh, hazards, natural hazards or natural disasters and what they represent with Islam becoming more prevalent in Indonesia? This is, this is always a, a big question when it comes to Indonesian history or really the history of, of anywhere that has experienced Islamization in its, you know, in its recorded history because we have, there, there is a conventional notion that Indonesian culture, or particularly Javanese and uh, Javanese culture, maintained its continuity or has maintained its continuity through the arrival of different kinds of world religion. There's a sort of ongoing Javaneseness that goes through it all, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, or Islam, Christianity, and that's I think quite a. I mean, it's, it, it's an idea that's that's strong in the sense that. There are a lot of evidence for it, but it's also strong in the sense that it's quite difficult to disprove because there's you're always able to point to things, to kind of cultural continuities and say, well, that's evidence that there's an enduring you know, link that isn't, that is, that is only minimally affected by the change of religious perspective. And it's, I think, it's analytically quite subjective how you then position those continuities in an overall framework and judge its its impact. So it's a pretty abstract way of putting it. But the the idea is we don't well, there's not always one way of interpreting whether a particular phenomenon that looks like it's continuous in Javanese culture is in fact continuous, to what extent it's continuous, and whether in fact it's simply the same idea manifested in different ways, or if it's really a different idea that's being expressed in a similar way due to convention. So to make this more concrete, when we look at how natural disasters are expressed in, say, the Hindu-Buddhist texts period of um, Javanese history and then later in the Islamic period, we see continuities, right? We see similar patterns emerging in the way in which they're associated, associated with kings and the, and the change of power. But then the nature of that power is framed quite differently because of the religious background. So the nature of Hindu-Buddhist 
power is that it's associated with the relationship between the king and some Hindu divinity, often Shiva, uh, in the context of, of Java. The idea of the king as either a descendant or, or a manifestation, an incarnation of a particular Hindu god, either in life or afterwards in death, is part of the understanding of, of power and power within that religious framework in, in ancient Java. Such a thing did not exist in Islamic Java. It's not possible because the religion doesn't accommodate it. We have other notions of the king as the shadow of God on earth, concepts that are more resonant with Islamic understandings of political power. Mm. And I think you've definitely highlighted the nuances and the complexities of trying to understand this particular issue in Indonesia and globally even as well as um, really justifying the role of historians in today's academic study and, and the really important role that historians play in, in helping us to understand the past, which is not clear, which is not you know black and white and has all of these different, as you say, layers and nuances and, and ambiguities. So with that, Jara, I feel like I've taken up enough of your time. So thank you so much for joining me. It's been really interesting hearing about your research and uh, your thoughts on this topic. And yes, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. 